This episode is brought to you by Google. Google's two-step verification was built to secure your account and help prevent cyber attacks, even if your password is compromised. That's why Google has made it easy to sign into your account with this additional layer of protection. Just one tap and you're in. Learn more at safety.google. No! No! Go away! Go away! Please go away! I saw her. And she was running straight at me, like the dust ticked up from her paws, taking off, like after me. Uh, and that's when I was like, oh. Holy shit. Yeah, this is the first time I've ever seen a mountain lion. They'll see you before you see them. Go away. I'm big and scary. Holy, you're a good little kitty cat. You never really think it's going to happen to you, right? And so that's kind of what was going through my head at the same time. It's just like, geez, like, you can kill me whenever you want to. No! Hi, I'm Jan Renner, founder of Roaring Earth. And I'm science journalist Kate Morgan. In each episode of the Roaring Earth podcast, we explore stories of the natural world, delving into the science behind amazing wildlife behavior and wild phenomena captured on video by people like you. In the fall of 2020, Kyle Burgess was out running on a wooded trail near his home in Utah. In the middle of the trail, he saw what he thought were a couple of bobcat cubs. He pulled his phone out to take a photo, and that's when he realized they weren't bobcats at all. They were baby mountain lions. Their angry mama chased Kyle for six minutes that felt like an eternity. He kept his video running the whole time, alternating between yelling at the roughly seven foot long, 100 pound cat to go away and go calmly away. telling her he didn't want to die. I don't feel like dying today. Kyle's video went incredibly viral. He was interviewed on Good Morning America and by Anderson Cooper on CNN. And everyone from the New York Times to our team at Roaring Earth picked up the amazing story. All of America was transfixed by what happened to Kyle and not necessarily because it was a one in a million occurrence, but because it could have happened to any of us. Encounters between mountain lions and humans are on the rise, and so are mountain lion populations. We asked Kate to explore the story of America's big cat and help us all get ready for life in lion country. The cats were here before the people. Some 20,000 years ago, before humans crossed the land bridge from Asia to North America, the continent was teeming with big cats. There were Smilodons, massive saber-toothed tigers, 500-pound American lions that preyed on woolly mammoths, American cheetahs that chased down pronghorn on the western plains, and mountain lions. At the end of the Pleistocene, just as the human population was spreading, most of those big cats went extinct, along with almost all the other megafauna of North and South America. But somehow their equally ancient cousin survived. The mountain lion's territory stretched from Canada to Argentina, from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Everywhere was lion country, and the cats thrived. The mountain lion is a solitary ambush predator that stands three feet or so tall at the shoulder and often more than six feet from nose to tail. A big male can weigh more than 200 pounds. They're successful generalist hunters, eating everything from insects to huge ungulates like bison. 
It's a silent stalker. A common refrain says that by the time you see a mountain lion, it's already way too late. And its reclusive nature has earned it the nickname Ghost Cat. But it has other names, too. As European settlers spread to different regions, they adopted their own names for America's big cat. Pumas in South America, they're also a cougar, a catamount, a Florida panther. They're all the same species now. With the advent of DNA technology, uh, researchers have been able to drill down to about six subspecies. But they're, they're all, we're all talking about uh, what we know up here as a mountain lion. Jim Williams is a wildlife biologist in Whitefish, Montana. For 30 years, he's worked on conservation issues in and around rural communities. Throughout it all, my specialty really has been uh, mountain lion work and other large carnivores. In 2018, Jim wrote a book called Path of the Puma. Published by Patagonia, it details the plight of the cats in the 19th and 20th centuries as government-sponsored bounty hunting programs nearly wiped them out. A hundred years ago, it was pretty much a manifest destiny, you know, a colonization of the West by, for the most part, white visitors and strangers to uh, the Western United States. And yeah, everything, all wildlife almost, was reduced and some species were eliminated. But in the 1970s, hunting slowed and mountain lions were given protected status in many states. By 1971, uh, mountain lions were becoming game animals, legally classified game animals in most Western states. And that brought the game wardens with them. So all of a sudden, you, you cannot take that animal outside of a certain date and without a license. That's a huge regulatory benefit to any species because now you've got the force of the law. It was the opportunity they needed. Steadily and quietly, over the next 50 years, they began staging one of the most remarkable comebacks in the history of conservation. All the cats needed was a little bit of protection. They started to increase in almost every single Western state in Canada. Because they're so cryptic in nature, uh, we don't see them. They, they're active at night, at dawn, at dusk, for the most part. We don't know they're there. And I think through time, because humans typically do not see them, they have flourished. And that doesn't say too much about us, but I believe it's true. Elsewhere, big cats are in big trouble. There are fewer than 20,000 lions in all of Africa, and as few as 15,000 wild jaguars in the world. The global tiger population has dipped below 4,000. And yet the mountain lions of North America are repopulating the continent. Estimates put the population around 40,000 and climbing. They are still here, despite everything humans have thrown at wild places and wild things over millennia. They are still here from the southern tip of South America all the way to northern British Columbia. They're also still thriving in most of those areas. But it's amazing that they're still here. When all of the other cats around the planet, virtually almost all of them, are stable or declining. They are beating the odds, Jim writes in Path of the Puma. They are hope for those of us who believe our future will depend, in large part, on finding the wild. But while the recovery has been astounding in most places, as we're about to learn, things haven't gone so well for mountain lions east of the Mississippi. More on that when we come back. Before the break, we learned about the incredible comeback of the mountain lion, a 
a species that survived an ancient extinction and outlasted a century of bounty hunting. But lion country once stretched from coast to coast, and today, that's not the case. Back to Kate's report. Before America was colonized, when Manhattan was just a fur trading post in the woods, Boston was a marshy coastal plain, Philadelphia a dense hardwood forest, and Miami a lush river basin, this was the domain of lions. Their historic range was from about Maine down to Florida. All these states had bounty programs in place in the 19th century. Chris Spatz is an advisor and a former president of the Cougar Rewilding Foundation. He lives in New York State, where, he explains, an exploding population of people pushed the predators out. It happened all along the East Coast. We wiped out their prey base, which is primarily white-tailed deer. So market hunting, got rid of the deer, got rid of the mountain lions. There was nothing for them to eat. So they were wiped out basically to the Rocky Mountains. At the same time, hundreds of thousands of acres of eastern forest was leveled for farms and settlements, drastically shrinking the mountain lion habitat. But in the intervening centuries, the land has changed again. A lot of those farms have been surrendered back to nature. Places that were once clear-cut have been reforested. But restoring the flora is only half the battle. If you want the complete ecosystem back, you need the fauna, too. All of it. These big, huge, deciduous forests that have recovered over the last hundred years, since you have this gigantic, gorgeous, deciduous forest on the East Coast now, it has stopped regenerating essentially because overpopulation of deer has stopped the recovery of, of seedlings and saplings. But control the deer by reintroducing their natural predator, and things come back into balance. What we know from research in places like Yellowstone and Zion and Yosemite, um, when you bring back a top predator, they begin to affect the way prey species like elk and deer browse. They change the way that the elk and the deer browse. So they have to start looking over their shoulder, keeping, keeping an eye out for these predators. They keep moving. So that releases um, these seedlings and saplings to start regrowing. Um, so that is the primary reason why we need to bring them back to the East Coast. Yep, you heard that correctly. The primary aim of the Cougar Rewilding Foundation is to bring back mountain lions to the East Coast. You know, when we realized there weren't any breeding populations of mountain lions on the East Coast outside of Florida, we shifted our focus to rewilding, to advocating for them recolonizing on their own or for even bringing them back physically, reintroducing them to the right places like the Adirondacks and, say, southern Georgia or Great Smoky Mountain National Park. The movement got a boost in early 2018. For years, the eastern mountain lion was on the endangered species list, but that January, it was officially declared extinct. Maybe that doesn't sound like a good thing, but it could be a big help. Reintroducing endangered species is a complicated prospect, tangled up in federal wildlife laws. But reintroducing an extinct one is a lot simpler. It's really just up to each state to give the green light. That doesn't mean the path to recovery is smooth. As you might imagine, local and state governments aren't super quick to accept the idea of bringing back a predator that could, on occasion, 
pose a danger to people and their pets, especially on the East Coast, where dense human populations would leave not a lot of buffer between our territory and the lions. But Chris still thinks it could work. And it is one of the arguments that we do here. You know, the California, um, where you have 40 million people and uh, about 5,000 cats, which is almost identical to the area and the human population of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, New York, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia combined. We have almost, I think, a third more forest cover than California does. So if they can make it in California, um, they can certainly make it here. But even if they're not put back, many experts believe that, given enough time, mountain lions could recolonize the East on their own. The territories of individual cats often encompass hundreds of miles, and males can roam even further. A few years ago, a young male who was born in the Black Hills of South Dakota journeyed more than 2,000 miles before he met his end, struck by an SUV just outside Milford, Connecticut. But Chris says even if an eastern population did eventually reestablish itself, it could take decades for the first lions to get there. They've even recolonized into the prairie states. You've got them in the Black Hills in South Dakota. There's a couple of small populations in Nebraska. That's as far east as they've recolonized. And that's across some of the most unpopulated areas in the lower 48. So it took them 25 years to move 150 miles. But they are moving. And it's likely we'll start hearing more reports of lions spotted in Appalachia, the Adirondacks, and other coastal areas. At first, they'll be lone males. Females don't range as far, so it could take many generations for a breeding population to reach the East Coast. But given enough time and enough tenacity on the part of the cats, it could certainly happen. Jim Williams says it could already be happening, at least on a small scale. Plus, these are creatures that move in the shadows. They could be closer than we think. By the time we get a radio on any species and we document it in a, and, we do, and we write a report or a publication, by the time we figure it out, it's already been happening, typically. So as populations grow and the mountain lions recolonize the United States, its people face a choice. Can we learn to live in lion country? We'll talk about it after this. Mountain lions are slowly making their way closer and closer to our own backyards. In many ways, that's a good thing. They're restoring ecosystems and even potentially returning to habitats where they were once totally extinct. But as Kate explains, the comeback of America's big cat will only really last if America's people can get used to the idea. Not long ago, Jim Williams says, he got a call from a friend of his in Montana. The friend is a fellow biologist and totally understands local ecology. Still, Jim says, they were panicked by the sight of a mountain lion near their house. My kids, they're little. Uh, what, what do I do? You know, I mean, right away, because everyone that has children or a pet and they see a large carnivore, fear comes in. What do I do? Are they safe? And so, you know, tolerance is going to come in many, many, many forms. So it involves a response. And so people typically feel safe with bears, wolves, and lions if when they're afraid or when they're concerned or when they have 
a conflict that someone responds to that. And that's where these specialists come in. Jim is what's called a conflict biologist. In addition to simply studying mountain lions, he specializes in figuring out how to keep them out of trouble with people. It means developing methods for routing them away from populated areas and discouraging them from preying on livestock. Conflict resolution is step one in developing tolerance, the number one thing the lions need to survive. The second step to tolerance building is education, and not in the form of rigorous academic papers. Hello, my name is John Griff Griffith. I go by Griff, and I'm a natural and cultural resource interpreter in Northern California. Griff considers himself a scientific translator. He also says he's in the business of edutainment. I don't know if people have noticed, but a lot of times scientists, when they speak, they're kind of speaking to their own group, even if they're on the news or if they're on TV, you know, speaking to a large group of people and everybody's kind of lost. So I'm there to fill in the blanks. I'm kind of like the person you see speaking, interpreting, you know, uh, doing some sign language on the side. I'm kind of like that for scientists. Griff spends all his time helping people understand the natural world around them. He's got a day job for California state parks, leading talks and tours and programs. He writes fiction aimed at teaching young adults about endangered species. He makes videos and content for his nearly 20,000 social media followers. And he hosts Animal Planet's online show, Wild Jobs. I see everybody as a wildlife manager because everything we do affects wildlife. You know, it's not just the people that have the title, it's everyone. Griff's got a soft spot for predators, especially mountain lions, because he's seen firsthand what can happen when humans react to them with fear. Shoot, shovel, and shut up is a saying among uh, rural folks. If you have, you know, depredation, some of your livestock or hobby animals are being killed by wolves or coyotes or mountain lions, that you don't report it, you just shoot them and you dig a hole and you throw them in there and you don't tell anybody. Shoot, shovel, and shut up. All my life, you know, growing up, I've been trying to help people empathize with wildlife and to understand them. And so once they can empathize and understand wildlife, they're more likely to take compassionate action, you know, or at least do no harm. Griff's not suggesting those protecting their livestock are bad people. He just thinks the path to change begins with understanding that the ranchers and farmers are a part of the ecosystem around them. And what he wants people to understand about the mountain lion is that it belongs. It shapes and balances the ecosystem and its trophic cascades, the direct and indirect impacts all species have on one another. If you love wild places, you have to love the lion. And so it's a great thing for interpreters to talk about predator ecology because you automatically have their attention. You know, if I went out and said, hey, everybody, sit down. I'm going to tell you about banana slugs. People would be like, oh, great. Thank you. Um, but if I was like, there's mountain lions in this park, they'd be like, what? Everybody be quiet. What did you say? Mountain lions? And so now I have their attention. But instead of doing what culture has done so much in the past and make them bigger and scarier and terrible than they would ever be in reality, I want to turn them into something that you can relate to. And once I tell you the story of the mountain lion and, and have you relate to it, I want you to see that by managing for the mountain lion, we are managing for the leaf miner insects and the banana slug and the raccoon and the opossum and the salmon because they're all under that trophic umbrella. And the future of the mountain lion affects us all. Almost every American lives in a place that was once mountain lion territory and could be again, if it isn't already. That means the education and the conversation 
has to include all of us. Conservation kind of has this, um, and a lot of people are gonna be mad at me for saying this, but like this history of exclusivity. And we do not have time for that bullshit. Everybody has to come together, everyone has to learn about mountain lions, trophic levels, um, corridors, overpasses. Everybody needs to be on board. It can't be a cool club. That's why more important than ever, like conservation cannot be an exclusive hobby of the rich. It can't be an exclusive hobby of one ethnic group, of one class, of one religion, of just educated people. It, like it can't be just a group of biologists that know all this information that doesn't help the mountain lion. But the culture of conservation is changing as surely as mountain lions are reclaiming their ancestral home. We are learning to live with lions, to love and protect them, and respect that this planet is a place we share. <gasps> Even Kyle Burgess, Go get as your terrified babies. as he was to encounter mountain lion down, on promise. his run, is quick to acknowledge that he was in her house. She was just doing her job by running him off. Griff says this new way of thinking is a remarkable shift. We're not that far removed from a time when fear and inconvenience drove people to kill everything perceived as a threat. Now, we're beginning to understand that the real threat is a landscape where we find ourselves all alone. And we don't want to go there. We want the lions. When the colonists came to the Western United States, one of the first things they did was poison and kill everything. They killed everything. They sterilized the environment so they could have their sheep and their cows and not have to watch them, just turn them loose on the land. And now this land belongs to sheep and cows. We killed off our soul. We killed off our closest relatives and we're sterilizing ourselves. and we're losing a part of ourselves. We're losing a relative. We're losing um, a means to be present in our environment. And we're losing all the ecological function that we're just now starting to understand before we have a chance to fully embrace it. That sterility mindset came from the fear. And now we have to come back and kind of embrace the fear and, and, and become informed. Like, I wanna hike through a wild place. I feel like that's where we need to get. We need to get back to where we fit in to our landscapes without them being sterilized. And that's it. The moral, not just of this episode, but of this entire first season of the Roaring Earth podcast. We are not alone here. And if we're going to protect, preserve, and restore Earth's phenomenal biodiversity, we have to get past the fear of the planet's forces and its other animals and start seeing them all as indispensable members of our team. It's not just a fight for conservation. It never is. It's a battle for our souls. I think Chris Spatz put it best. They were our first gods. We know that. <laughs> you know, we know that from from indigenous cultures who survived into the 20th and 21st century. Um, we know that from their artwork. We know that from um, from the myths that got passed down. We know that from as the major religions were formed, that the gods had association with certain animals. So yes, they're vitally important to us, to our souls in the deepest sense. That'll do it for our first season and what a note to end on. There are endless stories of our unpredictable, unbelievable roaring earth left to tell. So we'll be back before you know with season two. 
Thanks to Kate Morgan, and thanks for listening to the Roaring Earth Podcast. If you liked our show, please follow us on your favorite podcast app and share with all your friends. Comments and reviews are always greatly appreciated. For more info on today's episode, including videos and research, visit RoaringEarth.com. We're already at work on more episodes, but until then, send us your amazing wildlife and nature videos so we can delve deep into the story behind them. The Roaring Earth podcast was written and produced by Kate Morgan. Sound engineering and original music was provided by Joe Baseri. Casey O'Brien is the associate producer. Jan Renner and Glenn Hoffman are the executive producers. Special thanks to Jim Williams, Chris Spatz, John Griff Griffith, California State Parks, and the Cougar Rewilding Foundation. I'm Jan Renner from Roaring Earth.